Hello, this is Reverend Joshua Bell, recording to you on my Elder series. This will be part three. I hope you enjoy it, and God bless. As we continue our discussions about elders and deacons and their roles of clergy in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, it's, it's essentials that in the aspect of what we call striving for unity with the complexities of multiple denominations in the sanctuary. We find it hard to describe what it is that we do to be a truly disciple. Now, let's be honest. We have distinct characteristics. For example, communion most of the time. Our polity is unique and the structure is unique. And honestly, there's a, a sense of um, a willingness to do mission locally, regionally, and globally. Now, we have many people from different faith traditions that think we celebrate communion just like our Catholic brothers and sisters. But the answer is we really don't. Our communion is a part of the service, as I understand it. It focuses on the Last Supper. Theologically, it is, it is some form of consubstantiation, which is just a fancy term of there's a holy mystery that takes place at the table. And unlike our Lutheran brothers and sisters, uh, for us, the mystery isn't necessarily about Jesus dying, but the mystery about reuniting all of the children of God. We're not mysteriously transforming the bread and the cup into the actual body and blood of Jesus. Now that idea is transubstantiation, which is where it actually transforms into the body and blood of Jesus. The strength of the way we celebrate communion is, is that we almost always say, all are welcome at this table, who profess that Jesus is the one whom we choose to follow. It still begs the question as to who can administer the elements in the Christian church disciples of Christ. The short answer is, anyone Regardless of who can administer communion, the issue is stronger when we talk about what it is that we believe is happening at the table. You see, our elders are not just saying some sort of magical phrase or prayer. They are serving the meal and blessing it for all of those that are going to participate in our remembrance of the Last Supper. This is my rationale for changing the name of what we call elders that doesn't necessarily truly explain what it is as elders actually do to the phrase steward. I feel the word steward is more accurately what we have now as the function of what we used to call elder. This terminology is used by Dr. Ritva Williams in her book, Stewards, Prophets, Keepers of the Word. She creates a dialogue in which I feel is closer to the roles and functions of those that are at the table. The central activity of the church seems to be a meal. The Lord's Supper, followed by the acts of prophecy, teaching, healing, and speaking in tongues. Dr. Williams refers to the book of Titus, where the pseudo-Pauline writer takes liberty with the fact that the word oikonomos is used to affirm the authority of the local congregational leaders who are called episkopos, or more translated into the phrase of overseer or bishop specifically focusing on Ignatius of Antioch, who highlights his roles as a, get this, broker-slash-steward of God's resources. The specific roles and qualifications are listed in Titus. The elders together, who perhaps one of the elders in each town, assumes that the role of overseer, and then functions like God's oikonomos, or stewards, 
a managerial doulos or slave who represents and speaks on behalf of the master. They're not arrogant. They're not quick-tempered. They're not addicted to wine or violent or greedy. And they must be hospitable and a lover of goodness, prudent, upright, devout, and self-controlled. The figure of the oikonomos or steward was intimately connected with how the household operated into the ancient world. Dr. Williams makes the case for the understanding that stewards serving in households, cities, and elective associations all seem to be responsible for the management of financial and other resources. This is exactly the way we as the Christian Church Disciples of Christ view the roles of elders. Now, for me, I find this fascinating, especially in the light of Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, where we read, Remember, friends, to you the call to give you freedom. Only do not make your freedom an opportunity for self-indulgence, but serve one another in a loving spirit. This verse from the Bible is food for thought, especially when you consider that the Greek word translated here as serve is dulio, which means to be a slave to. So to serve one another in love to, or to be a slave to one another in love, to yield to, to obey, to do someone's biddings, and to do so, all of these things, in an agape form of love. Dr. Williams also points out that in the Gospel of Luke, it, it is the only gospel to use the term oikonomos to describe several of these servants acting as agents for their master, especially in those parables. Paul describes himself as a steward of Christ, both to claim authority and to subvert the culturally dominant ideology of a benevolent patriarchalism by insisting that the faithful stewardship is characterized by the imitation of Christ's self-emptying solidarity with humanity. Now, obviously, I did not come up with those words, but this idea that Paul describes himself as a steward, which is my hope and focus— can you imagine a denominational movement that embraced the idea of stewardship as being a servant to one another and imitating Christ's ministry on earth? I mean, I don't feel as though we would have to rattle the cage of the woodworks begging for people to fill slots out for the upcoming year just to pray at the table. Our stewards become the models of the self-emptying solidarity of Christ with a, a sense of lowly humanity. So let's talk about some of the obstacles we face in the church. One of those is the lack of recognizing the devastation that can happen from unilateral decisions made on behalf of others. In Carol Duran and Thomas Troger's book entitled Trouble at the Table, Gathering the Tribes for Worship, we read how we might look at the congregational life as a tribal exertion. In the section entitled Touching Off Tribal Warfare with Autocratic Leadership, we read how leaders may be acting with the best of intentions, but the unexamined assumptions of their liturgical decisions give their leadership the appearance of insensitivity to the customs and understandings surrounding them. One example of this might be printing only the words of a hymn and assuming everyone knows the tune. Another form of this autocratic behavior is springing something new on people without any adequate preparation. For example, sometimes people decide to serve communion in a new way without discussing and preparing the servers or the congregation in, ahead of time. Now, I particularly care for the analogy that is presented in this book. 
about the recent works in linguistic and theology. It demonstrates that the ability to speak metaphorically about something is crucially meaningful, and it creates conversations about the development and ideas of a subject. One example of this might be imagery that comes forth from the hymn, Pastor, Lead Our Circle Dance, which you read about in the book of Trouble at the Table. This hymn is the culmination of collaborative leadership within a congregation. Churches respond positively to leaders who demonstrate clear theological knowledge of their tradition while remaining open to the unique character and contributions of their particular church. The task of leadership does not end with caring for the church's internal concerns. Whenever the church is perfecting its what we might call dance, there's always the danger of forgetting the world. To develop the church's dance while keeping the circle open to maybe what we might say the strangers in the street is more than any of us can do merely ourselves. In the book, you read this Building upon an exercise from the center's work on leadership skills, they've been often asked by conference participants working alone or in groups of three or four that draw their ideal vision of their church at worship. Eldership at the table is vital. Christians in the 21st century, especially in the Christian church, disciples of Christ, have issues in the word ritual. I would argue it's mainly due to the word We don't want to take away from the tradition of communion, and I would argue that the communion has become a ritual, and we should embrace this language. Dr. Driver discusses the difference between performing the ritual and observing the ritual. You see, my principal aim in this book is to show how necessarily ritual is to human freedom and to the social processes of liberation, they say. One of the ways in which ritual, religion, and liberative actions are alike is that they all construct alternative worlds. They nourish themselves with imaginative visions. The verb to perform, like its shorter but not simpler cousin, is to act, is two-faced. On the one side, these words mean to do, while on the other, they mean to pretend. What it is that elders are called to do, are we called to perform the ritual of the Lord's Supper or act it out? Observation is something marked by a special kind of attention or faithfulness, and it has the connotation of something performed at the proper time and in the right way. Likewise, performance then is a particular kind of doing. Although it's social, it has psychological and moral phenomenon, it is highly complex and it may be defined simply as that kind of doing in which the observation of the deed is an essential part of the doing, even if the observer might be invisible and or the performer is themselves. Dr. Ruth Duck explores almost all of the faith movements involved in the, what we call the baptism Eucharist movement uh, and uh, mission document. She also takes a broader approach to multicultural discussions of liturgy. She gives instruction and guidance on how to plan and implement worship experience. And if elders are truly becoming more involved within the leadership of congregations, especially with the planning and implementation of worship, this becomes a very important book for you. Now, I've only highlighted a few pages in this conversation, but this book in its entirety could be used on the 
how-to of planning worship. One issue I've witnessed with clergy, as well as elders in the congregation, is the ability to prepare for the leading and aspect of worship. This means needing to practice. I've spent a majority of my life performing music and theater, and practice for me means something different than it will for most congregational leaders. Dr. Duck gives a phenomenal approach to preparation for those that might be leading any aspect of worship. She says something to this nature. Number one, practice the reading out loud three or four times with an attention to diction. Two, practice in the place where you will be reading at least the first time you will read there. Three, practice good posture. Four, keep a steady eye on the text rather than bobbing up and down to make eye contact. If you want to make eye contact, memorize the text or choose a phrase you particularly want to emphasize. Now, let's be honest. Elders lead prayer. They can lead prayer in a host of ways. There are even prayers at the communion table. There are prayers at someone's bedside while in the hospital, and one conversation that comes up amid working with the elders of many different congregations is the question, where do I look for material? Dr. Duck proposes there are four main sources for words of worship. Number one, denominationally prepared, which you can find in our Chalice Worship book and a whole bunch of other books from our history, but nothing recent. Unscripted prayers, which in most rural congregations is honestly considered a must. Three, unofficial collections of prayers and liturgies, which you can find in a whole bunch of books that were printed back in the 50s and 60s. And then four, text written locally before a service. Now, if elders are expected to pray, it is important to have a conversation about how words are vital and give shape to a transformational experience. Because words are important in forming and renewing our faith, shaping and choosing language for liturgy is a sacred responsibility. So how do we make it relevant? Worship draws on the language of everyday life and relationships to speak of the God who is beyond our comprehension. Gary Straub, for example, a DOC minister, literally wrote the book on how to follow your calling as an elder. I think this book is extremely important, and it's broken down into seven chapters, like the first chapter is, Who Me, an Elder? Where this chapter specifically focuses on the discernment process that needs to take place in order to say yes. However, the question found on page five is extremely helpful. Are we cut out for this work? In my project for my master's in theological study, it was to rewrite the elder's manual. And I wanted to create a training event for elders in Oklahoma. I felt as though we would benefit from some self-realization exercise to see whether or not we are truly feeling called or frankly guilted into being an elder for the upcoming year. One of the issues we face to try to select and invite people to become elders for the upcoming year is truly having a grasp of what it is that we're asking of them. Chester Sillers, who used to write for the Disciple magazine, always has suggested there are six characteristics of being an elder. One, elders must be deeply spiritual people who practice what they preach. Two, should be faithful people who consider the service of God their highest honor. Three, must embody sacrificial stewardship by their own example. Four, elders should be enjoyable persons who are actually a blessing to be around. 
5. Elders are persons who make it their business to know the inner workings of the worldwide church beyond the local congregation. And 6. Elders are people whose loyalty to the Lord is not only self-evident, but also laced with humility. Now, I really appreciate the scholarship and the time that went into writing this book for congregations. And there's a lot of things that he does that I, I agree with, and some of them that I don't. I think it comes becomes an extremely important conversation as to what is it that we call elders and deacons? What do we do with this, and where do we go in the future? In my next podcast, I will talk more about how the roles of elders and deacons changed when we became a denomination. Until then, God bless.